Hi, my name is Beth, and I am the host of the Seeking Light podcast. In a world that presents us with growth and challenges, there is tremendous light. And this podcast is a source of light through scriptural insights that I have gained through the years. Come join me as I share light in a world that can sometimes be confusing. Okay, I'd like to welcome everybody to Friday's interview. Um, I love the connections I'm able to make with different people. And um, my friend Mitch Maurer has connected me to several people to interview for this podcast. And I'm really excited today for um, David Holiday is the person I'm interviewing today. And this is the first time he and I've met, which I love because I don't know a lot, but I know that this will be a wonderful time together that all of you can listen to and gain some light in your life. Um, David um, served in the military. He uh, is a convert to the church. I mean, we all are, but he is going to share possibly his conversion story. Um, he wrote a book that he never published. He taught seminary um, and he's a sealer at the temple. And so I'm just very grateful to have him on. And I think you're going to really enjoy hearing what he has to say today. So David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. So just so people can get to know you, David, can you talk about where did you grow up? Tell a little bit about your life early on. <clears throat> well, um, I was born in Seattle. Um, but my home was in Auburn, Washington. And so I'm the youngest of three children. And I grew up, um, I was born in 1946. So that gives you an idea of how old I am. And uh, so I grew up in the, you know, the, through the 50s and the 60s. And, and uh, that's, uh, I um, don't know what more to say than that. I don't want to waste a lot of time with, with you know, fluffy stuff about my youth, unless I can find out a way to tie it in to have it be meaningful of some kind. But uh, I'll share one memory that I have um, from that period of time. And I guess the reason I, it comes to my mind right now is because I've been interested in the things that have happened in my life that stirred my soul in some way or another. And one of the very first experiences I had like that, that I, that I couldn't, I didn't understand at the time, of course, but uh, there was a parade in our town and, and Auburn is famous for having Veterans Day parades, still, still does to this day. And um, I was probably mm, three, four years old, somewhere in there. And I remember watching, uh, standing beside my father and uh, my brother and sister were there and my mother. I remember watching all the soldiers march by in their uniforms and with the flags and the, the sounds of the bands and everything like that. And um, for some reason that just kind of stirred my soul a little bit and I didn't know why. And then way up the street, I, uh, I could hear people cheering and it's kept getting closer. So my father picked me up and put me on his shoulders. And I, I saw a car coming by. It had American flags stuck in the, in the front bumper. And there was a big star on its door. It was a brown military car. It was a convertible. And there were about maybe five men sitting in there. And they all had khaki uniforms on. 
And one of them was sitting in the back and he waved at the crowd with a corn cob pipe in his hand. And the crowd just erupted in cheering. And I remember feeling um, so stirred inside, it almost brought me to tears and I don't know why. And the car went by and my father said, now you remember the day that you saw Douglas MacArthur. And, uh, and I never forgot that, but I just remember that it caused feelings inside me that I hadn't experienced before and wasn't aware of, but I knew that it, I felt like I was part of something with all those people all around me cheering. And I felt kind of caught up in the whole thing and, and unified with them in some way. And so looking back now, all I can think of is that it must have been, he must have been making kind of a victory tour around the country at that time, you know, World War II was shortly over. And uh, that's all I can think of. But, but I just remember that uh, it, it stirred my soul. And, uh, and I never forgot that. Wow. And did you say you were three or four? Yeah. Wow. Well, it must have been, you know, 1949, maybe 1950. It was, be I believe it was before the Korean War. So I'm not I'm not sure what you know the, the date was, but I was I was young enough to for my father to put put me on his shoulders. Had you um, had your father served in the military? No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He he uh, was injured uh, um, as a young man, and so he he was not able to. So he worked at Boeing through the war and helped make you know helped airplanes. So was your family religious? Did your parents have a specific religion? The only one in my family that was religious was my mother. And I remember her going, she was an Episcopalian. And she went to church pretty much every Sunday. Uh, and we went with her on the regular religious holidays like Easter and Christmas and things like that. And, and that's all I remember. I do remember though feeling kind of uncomfortable going there. And I, I don't know why, it just seemed so very foreign to me. And my, the religion that for my mother, I really believe was more of a social, I know that she believed in her heart that she had a conviction of God and Jesus Christ in her heart, but it was not something that was spoken of in the home. And um, we would go to church and we would come home and we wouldn't talk about it afterwards. So, so my spiritual training as a young child was not much of anything. So when did you first have any interaction with the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, I, I would have to, I would have to say, I have to qualify that question and, and make it be the first meaningful experience that I had. And so I'm going to have to go back a little bit, or maybe jump forward a little bit. I'll jump forward to my time in the military. Okay. Because that's where it all originated for me. Oh, Okay because I grew up, went through high school and, you know, I was just a knucklehead basketball player, baseball player, you know, just uh, have fun and live for the day. And um, anything beyond that was, 
was not on my agenda. But when I graduated from high school, that was 1965. By then, we were already in the Vietnam War. And there were, there were kids from my high school that I knew who went away to the war and some of them had been killed. And so that surely was something that was on my mind as, uh, as a young man. And, um, and so, and wondering how all this was going to impact me in one way or another, what was, what was going to be uh, my involvement in it. And I remember, you know, not wanting to go when I graduated. And so I, I, I went to college, but you know, I, I was not a serious student and my grades lacked as a result of that. And, uh, um, and so I received a draft notice in the mail and I had a friend of mine that was in the Navy and um, I spoke with him and thought, well, maybe that would be the better way to go for me. And so I joined the Navy. And- um, Now, David, did you volunteer? I mean, they sent you the draft letter, but like for my dad, he also received the draft, but he chose to voluntarily join the army. So did you decide, I'm just going to join the Navy instead of being drafted? Yes. Okay. Yes, I did that and avoided being drafted. I, you know, I, you know, I don't know if my reasoning was sound at that time or not, but, but uh, instead of being drafted for two years, I joined the Navy for four years. <laughs> and, um, um, but I, I just figured I would rather be on a ship than slugging it around in, in rice paddies and, uh, and, facing some of the things that some of my close friends had faced. And so I thought maybe I could avoid that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and so I joined the Navy and, and uh, it's interesting. I, uh, when I came home from boot camp, I had, I had met my future wife uh, at school, at college, and we got engaged. And then I went off to boot camp. I came home 13 weeks later and on my boot camp leave, the end of my boot camp leave, we got married. Three days after our marriage, I reported aboard my first ship in Pearl Harbor. And very shortly after that, to my surprise, off I went to Vietnam. And so the first year of our marriage was by the mail, pretty much. And it was hard, it was very hard. And the things that I was experiencing uh, um, in the war zone were, were not pleasing. You know, we, we patrolled the Saigon River, we went up and down to the Tonkin Gulf and were engaged in a whole lot of activities that, uh, that made me wonder about my mortality, it made me start to become very sensitive to my own mortality. And, um, and then, you know, we came home from there and I got to live with my wife. We moved down to California and to, to uh, San Diego because that's where I was going to be home ported on a new ship. And so we lived together down there for about a year and a half. And then the ship that I was on headed back to Vietnam again. And so I left her and, and had very, very troubling premonitions about 
this, this trip because things were heating up over there quite a bit. And it was on this trip, this, this cruise, that um, we had our most extensive combat. And um, I remember we, we were way up off the coast of North Vietnam, way, way up there. Uh, you could see China from where we were. And our, our job was to rescue pilots if they had been shot down. And we rescued several of them. I remember going, trying to find one, trying to locate one on our ship. We tracked him and we tracked where his, his plane went down. We got there, all there was was debris in the water. We sent divers in and um, all they found was the man knee. And that struck me so deeply. And, uh, and I, I don't know, it just made, became very personal to me. And I realized that some mother and father, some wife, some children were gonna receive news in a very short time about someone they loved they were never going to see again. And I remember how that affected me. And it wasn't long after that until we got engaged in a, a pretty extensive uh, battle. It was, on June, it was April 19th. I always remember that date. And it was in that experience that, that um, I believed that I was going to die. I believed that, that well, what it comes down to is that they shot a missile, they shot several missiles at us. We had already taken out some of their planes and they shot some missiles at us. And my job at that point was, was um, I was an electronic warfare specialist. And so it was our job to, to find these threats and to do what we could electronically to jam their signals or whatever to prevent us from being hit by them. And I remember this one that was coming at us at about four times the speed of sound. And we were doing everything we could to, uh, to block it. And uh, it was, I don't know if we were successful or not. I remember looking at my friend and looking into his eyes, uh, thinking this is the last person I'm going to see in mortality, this is it. And uh, obviously it didn't happen, we were able to to uh, make contact with that missile and, and destroy it before it destroyed us. But I came away from that uh, thinking to myself, if there is a God, I need to find out about it. I need to find him. If he, if he truly exists, I need to find that out for myself and, and uh, develop some kind of a relationship because I didn't have one. And I felt that I was very close to uh, entering in that door into the spirit world at that time. And, uh, and I was totally unprepared. So that went into the back of my mind. I was going, that was going to be a mission in my life was to find out if in truth there, there really was a God, because I didn't know. And um, 
I, I got my discharge from the Navy and, uh, and I enrolled in school at the University of Washington. Uh, my wife and I lived there in an apartment and, and, um, and I studied history. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to learn as much as I could. I wanted to be a teacher so that I could do something that might lift another soul and, and help people understand a little bit more about the world. Though I didn't know much about it myself. But the thing was, is the more I studied about history, the more disturbed I got because what I saw was, it's just a pattern of one warfare after another. And the thing that was frightening about it was that the weapons that were used to, to complete one war were the weapons that were used to begin the next one. And World War II ended with nuclear weapons. And so this alarmed me quite a bit. And, uh, and so I, and there was something else too that I probably ought to, to, to qualify where, where I am at this point. So I, I was in, uh, enrolled in the teacher edu education program so I could become a teacher. But I was troubled. And I know that it was my experience in Vietnam that, that caused that because I didn't like being around people. I was uncomfortable being around people. I, I went to class at the University of Washington. I'd go to class, I'd come home. It had a population, day and nighttime population of about 50,000 people. I made maybe two friends all the time I was there. The kids that were in my class, I got to know a little bit. But I mostly stayed away from people. And so the idea of becoming a teacher and standing in front of a class and having something to say or something to teach terrified me. And so I dropped out of the teacher program and I didn't know what to do with my life. So I graduated with a degree in history and, uh, and didn't know where to, where to go after that. Didn't know what to do. And so, but I've been an artist uh, and I say that loosely because I've, I've I've drawn and painted most of my life. And so I thought, let's just get away where there isn't many people, let's go somewhere. And maybe I can involve, you know, get engaged in my artwork and, and I don't have to interact with people. I can just make a living like that. And that was really a dumb thing to, to think at the time, but that was where my mind was. And my wife, bless her heart, was willing to do whatever, you know, would, would, would make me happy at that point. And so our plan was, to, uh, to go to Montana and, uh, and to, I was, I was always fascinated by American Indians. And so I wanted to learn more about American Indians and maybe do portraits of them. And, um, and so uh, the long and the short of it, you know, we went and visited there and everything and we made plans to move there. But on our way, we stopped in Quincy, Washington. It's right in the middle of the state, in the Columbia Basin. And my wife, my wife is an American Japanese. And her uncle and auntie lived in Quincy, Washington. And he was a gardener. He raised and sold vegetables. And so we stopped there and it was in the late summer. And so harvest was coming on. And this was a very engaging old man. He was 80 years old. And 
I just, you just loved him immediately. He was just such a gentle, sweet man and a, and a good worker. And so I loved to work with him. Here's an interesting little side bit. I would go out and work with him. We'd be harvesting onions, topping onions. We'd pick up a handful of them. We'd put them into a, cut the tops of them off, let them fall into a basket, dump them into a, a gunny sack. And when the gunny sack was full, we had left the gunny sack onto a trailer. He was 80 years old. I was, what, 22, something like that, 23, in my prime. And I had all I could do to keep up with him. And it wasn't because he was stronger than me. Heck, I outweighed him probably by 80 pounds. And it wasn't because he was, well, it was because he understood how to work. And he had an economy of motion. And so he was so graceful in the way no wasted effort of any kind at all. He could do it all in just like a dance. He could just pick those things up, cut the tops of the onions off, drop them in the basket, do the whole thing like it was a ballet. And I was struggling along, just doing my best to keep up with him. And so I learned a lot from that old man. He taught me how to cultivate. He taught me how to, to uh, water and all these things. Well, when that year was over, he decided to retire. And so he and his wife moved to Moses Lake, which was about 40 miles east. And they asked us if we wanted to stay on and do the farm ourselves. I had never done that, anything like that before in my life, but it appealed to me. And so I said, yes. And my wife had been brought up on a similar farm down the Yakima Valley. And so she understood about farming. And so this was just going back to her roots to do this. Um, my wife's an interesting person. She was, she was uh, born in a relocation camp during the war. So she was, she was born in, in camp and, uh, and that's, uh, that was her introduction to this world. So she's got you know, quite a story that, that comes from that. But, but so we became vegetable farmers. I don't think I ever worked so hard in my life, but I loved it. And the long hours of working in the field, working on a tractor, working with my hands, working with a hoe, weeding, watering, digging, um, and then harvesting. That became like a therapy to me. And, um, and again, my thoughts started turning back to God again. And I started seeing the garden experience as um, a rhythm. And I realized that you know, everything was in perfect rhythm. There was a time that, that and it sounds like Ecclesiastes, but it's so, it's so real. There was a time to plant, there was a time to plow, there was a time to plant, there was a time to harvest. And all those things had to be done in a specific time in order to get success at what you're doing. And if you miss the timing of something, it throws everything off. And so there's a rhythm of working with the earth, with the season that uh, is really important to understand. And in order to understand that, it, it, it requires you to understand that in order to become a good gardener or a good farmer, to understand the rhythm of the harvest, the rhythm of the, of the plants. Then I began thinking, who is it that set this up in the first place? Who's behind all of this? 
And that's when I decided that I, I really needed to uh, uh, get serious about finding out if there was a God. I'll tell you something else too. And this was a major experience in my life. I'll trust you to think that it's not weird when I tell it to you. And you mentioned to me earlier when we were talking that there was a point in your life when, when you were in despair. And I reached that point as well because I began thinking, is this what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life? Do I really wanna do this for the rest of my life? Or do I want to fulfill my, my earlier dream of becoming a teacher? And I, I didn't know what to do. And, uh, and we weren't making much money and it was tough. And I remember it was in late May and I was probably in the lowest dumps that I had ever been in. I went for a walk. I took my, put in the chili, it was, a, it was a drizzly day, cool. Put my old navy peat coat on and I, and I walked out into our field and the little cantaloupe plants and the watermelon plants and the corn plants were just starting to emerge from the ground. I walked right to the very back of the, our 10 acre plot of ground. And I stood there in just despair. And then somebody was there. I felt the presence of somebody there. And I never experienced anything like that before in my life. I know this is going to sound peculiar to some people, but it was very real to me. It was so real that I could tell the direction where this person was. Though I would look in that direction and all I saw was an empty field, but somebody was there. And not only were they, were they there, but they were making themselves known to me. And then it dawned on me in my mind, it's him. And the tears just started flowing down my cheeks. And I, with that feeling, I was just like embraced and surrounded in an aura of love that I had never experienced before in my life. It was completely overwhelming. And I remember the tears just streaming down my face and I dropped to my knees and I looked in the direction and I remember thinking, not saying out loud, but thinking, you've always been there for me, haven't you? Waiting for me. And I heard no audible voice, but the word went through my mind with an accompanying feeling that I could feel to the depths of my soul. And the word was yes. And then it left. And I took a while to compose myself and I walked back to the house. And as I was walking, I said, thinking to myself, if there is nothing more I do in the rest of my life, 
I need to have him, I need to have the savior in my life. If there's nothing more I do, I don't accomplish anything more in life, that's what I need. And so I went in and I talked to my wife about what I experienced. And, um, and on that day, I began reading the Bible. And I began reading to her. She had been brought up as a Buddhist, but she was very interested in hearing what I had to say and what I was learning. I read from Genesis to Revelation and uh, just a bit at a time, and I would read to her, but I didn't have to get very far into it before I realized that indeed there was a God and Jesus Christ was his son and this book was real, it was true. The words soothed me. It was like putting balm on a burn as I would read them. The story, and I realized the stories had carried such wisdom in them and they caused feelings in me that I hadn't ever felt before. And so I was really having a spiritual awakening is what it really comes down to. And I was very interested in um, are living in the last days. That's what really was interesting because I felt from my experience in Vietnam and from my studies at school that the world was headed in a direction of destruction. Right. And so I was very concerned about how to prepare for that. Now also at this time, we had a child, our first daughter and, uh, and she was, almost two, and I thought, what kind of a world is she going to have? And how can I help to protect her from the things that are, that are, are obviously coming to this world? And so again, I, I, just, I just soaked up the, the Bible experience like a sponge. And um, again, very interested in, in the scriptures that, that describe the last days and the scriptures that talked about how to draw close to the Savior. And, um, and so the next thing then that I realized what we needed was we needed a church. Because I know that I had been baptized in the Episcopal church, but my wife hadn't been baptized. And what about, what's, what do I need to do for my little daughter and all of this to, to help us prepare? And one of the things that I, that, that I concluded as I studied, especially in the New Testament, was I concluded that there were no churches that I was aware of that were teaching the things that I was learning. And most specifically, I wanted to find a church that would teach me how to prepare how to come to know God and how to prepare for the last days and his second coming. That was uppermost on my mind. How do I prepare for the last, last, these last days? And how do I prepare for the coming of the Lord? And I could not find, uh, I, I had several friends that were members of different churches and I talked to them about them. And none of it interested me and none of it stuck with me. But 
at that point, my wife and I prayed together and we just asked our Heavenly Father, if there is a church out there, rather than us going around from church to church, just trying them all out, help us to find if, if, if there is a true church out there, please help us find it. Now, the interesting thing, within the next couple of weeks after that prayer, we raised and we sold vegetables and, and watermelon, cantaloupe, things like that on our stand. So people would come in to, we had a little, a little roadside stand out in front of the house. And it was interesting how many of them came and wanted to talk to us about their religion. And a lot of them uh, left us with pamphlets. And, um, and I, was all, I, I threw all my prejudices out the, out the door. I was going to listen to anybody and look at anything that they had to offer. I was willing to, to open it up and look at it. And so um, they came from all over. It was interesting. And I, I won't go into all the details of what, what churches approached us. But, but uh, uh, about a couple of weeks after that, couple of Mormon missionaries moved into a little farmhouse across the road and they would were, were renting that. I remember telling my wife, well, it won't be long until they're over here. And, uh, and I was right. I was out working on my, my tractor one morning. I was getting it ready to go out and cultivate. And these two guys came walking up with their white shirts and ties and their badges and, and uh, thought, okay, here it comes. And, uh, and I didn't know much about Mormons. That's, I, I, that was the name that I knew them by. I didn't know much about them other than I, I knew a little bit about Joseph Smith and, from my history and, and that, was, that was about it. So they came up and introduced themselves to me and they were pleasant. And then one of them said, um, do you believe we're living in the last days? And it was just like a bell went up. And I thought, and so on the out, inside, I'm going, whoa, where do you get that? But on the outside, I'm being very cool and poker face and everything. I says, yeah, is that what you believe in? And he said something to the effect was, yeah, in fact, that's the name of our church. We're the Church of Jesus Christ of the last days or the latter day saints. What do you know about our church? I says, well, I know that, that uh, you, you read the Book of Mormon. And uh, that's your Bible. And he says, well, we do believe in the Book of Mormon, but our Bible is the King James version of the Bible. But do you read the Bible? And I says, yes, I do. And he said, well, then, and he said, what version do you read? I said, well, I'm reading the King James version as well. And he says, well, we're on the same page, you know. And, and he says, all the Book of Mormon is, it's just another witness that Jesus is the Christ. And whereas the Bible talks about the dealings that God had with his children in the ancient world or the, you know, the old world. The Book of Mormon talks about Christ and his dealings with his people on this continent. Well, that really surprised me because I didn't know anything about the Book of Mormon. So I said, would you read it if we left it with you? Would you read it? I said, sure, I was open to anything. And so they left us a copy of it and uh, and shook our hands and said, we'll be back in a couple of days. And if you've got any questions, we'd be happy to answer them. And so they left. And, uh, and so I finished the day. And that night after dinner, I 
pulled out the uh, the Book of Mormon, and it had they had stuck into it a um, a copy of the first vision, Joseph's account of the first vision. So I sat down at the table, and my wife began to read that. Well, I began reading First Nephi chapter one, and to my great surprise. I got the same feeling inside of me that I got when I read the Bible. It, it just sounded like it was came from the same author. And the more I read, I'm still in First Nephi chapter one, before I got to the end of the chapter, I thought to myself, this is real. I set it down, I look at my wife, I remember slapping my forehead like this and saying, who would have thought of all the churches that are out there? It's the Mormons that have the truth. And she had been reading the Joseph Smith pamphlet or the Joseph Smith first vision. And she said, and did you know that this 14 year old boy had a vision from God and he became a prophet? And so I was getting a witness from reading the Book of Mormon at the same time she was getting a witness from reading the first vision. Totally blew us away completely. And so that was on a Saturday night. The, uh, the elders came back on Tuesday and they, we invited them into our home and we sat there and they, they were teaching us about baptism and my wife remember she was she was interested because her father died when she was seven years old so she grew up without a father and she always wondered where he was and she would ask her mother where's daddy and her mother didn't have any answer that was could satisfy her and so she always wondered and so she asked the elders about that and of course they told her about the spirit world and and um anyway Somehow the conversation got around to baptism and I heard myself say to them, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't think these words myself. All of a sudden I just heard these words coming out of me. I would like to be baptized and I think my wife would like to be baptized too. Well, they didn't say anything. And I thought, oh, maybe I said the wrong thing. And I said, is that okay? And then they, they collected themselves and said, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we can do that. That's, you know, when, when would you like that to happen? And I said, well, the sooner the better. And so I don't remember all that was said, but I remember that, that they left and they were gonna come back again. Interesting thing too, I'll throw in here, is that when they left the house, I realized that there had been a, a feeling in my house when they were there. And I, it just felt like light and I felt just good and warm inside. And when they left, that feeling went with them. And I remember my wife felt it also. I remember we talked to each other about that. And we said, we want that in our lives too. And so that was Tuesday night. They came back Wednesday night and they taught us more. They came back Thursday night and they taught us more. They came back Friday night 
They came Saturday morning and brought their zone leaders with them. They interviewed us and Saturday night we were baptized. We hadn't even been in church. And you, so this what, was- David, first, what year was this? This was 1979. 1979. Yeah. Wow. And so this was June 1st. So they invite us to go to church with them the next day. And you know what kind of a meeting the sacrament meeting was. Testimony meeting. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I sat in there and I never had heard anything like that before. I never experienced anything like that. People getting up, talking about how they knew the gospel was true and this and that and everything. And I'm just sitting there going, whoa. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, I don't know all of what it's going to take to be a Mormon but I'm gonna be the best Mormon I can be. And I remember when, when we were leaving, I looked at my wife and I said, it feels like we've just come home. And she said, yeah. And so we were baptized and that ward of farmers, they just embraced us and made us feel like we were part of the family and uh, those were some of the most glorious experiences of my life. I think of them now, and I still kind of pinch myself to, to you know, was that really true? Did it really happen? I got to share this with you, too, at the, at the end of this. Little, um, so my very first inclination, my very first desire was, and you think about this, when you think about Lehi and the tree of life, this was my first taste of the fruit. And notice what Lehi did after he tasted the fruit. He looked around for his family and beckoned them. So the very first thing that I did was I wrote a letter to my parents. And I told them I found the true church. And I told them about, wrote that to them, you know, and, and about my experience and everything. And um, about well, five or six days later I, got, later, I got a letter from my mother. And I was very close with both my parents extremely close with my mother because we could talk to each other very easily and, and had many long talks with each other. Well, her letter was not what I expected. I expected that it was going to be just, oh, wonderful and all that. How can we join too? And, you know, and, and it wasn't that at all. In fact, she was challenging me and my decision. I was totally unaware of that. I mean, I'm not unaware. I was totally unprepared for that. I remember I was sitting in my pickup truck reading the letter because I'd driven past our mailbox. I was coming back from town, stopped and got the mail, saw the letter from her. I drove up to the house, parked, opened the letter and read it and, and was shocked that it was not um, positive. And so I thought briefly to myself, have I made the right choice? Did I, did I make a mistake? Because this is my first challenge to my new faith. And I remembered that the missionaries had told us, the elders had told us that you can pray about this and the spirit will tell you, you know, spirit will answer your prayers. And they read, you know, Moroni Chen to me and all that. And so I, I thought, you know, I never really prayed about this. I just asked them to be baptized without praying first. And so I remember sitting there in the, in the, in the cab of my pickup and I said, bowed my head, I said, Heavenly Father, have I made the right decision? Now, you know, I can think in my lifetime 
of prayers that have been answered immediately and have been answered verbally. And I can think of maybe four or five. It's not a common thing. The first one was when I was out in the field, first experience, and I asked, you know, you've already been there. And, and well, so, so now I, I said, have I made the right decision? Now, this is very interesting, what happened? Because you would expect that he would just say, oh, yes, of course, you know, my, my son and all that, you know, and that isn't what happened. Instead, the words went through my mind with power and authority. And here's and I, and verbatim, though it wasn't you know, actual words, but this was the thought that went through my mind very clearly. Don't trouble me for what you already have. And I thought, gotcha, that's it, I understand. And that was it. And I never looked back from that point on, never other than just in glorious memory. But I never doubted from that day forth. That was, that was what I needed to hear. And that was, that's my conclusion into the church. That's how it worked for us. And um, shortly after that, I decided I wanted to finish up my, my teaching certificate. And it was interesting how the Lord worked me because in the winter times when you're a farmer, there's not much to do. So I would work in, in the, the sheds around the area that some of the big farmers had, and they would, heck, you know, they would keep their produce in big warehouses and then they would ship it out from time to time. And so I went and worked there and helped, you know, I would load up their trucks for them, things like that with a bunch of Mexican workers that I worked with, loved those men. And, uh, and but one one year I uh, decided that I would take a job driving school bus. So I was hired by a friend of mine who was a superintendent or the principal of a school in in Efrata, Washington, not too far away. And so I was hired to be a school bus driver, and that put me back in touch with kids, and I liked it, and I became. I had so much fun driving school buses with those kids. You know, we'd sing songs, we'd do all kinds of goofy things. I just wanted to live it up and had a great time with them. I had stopped at the grade school first and I would pick up the grade school kids and sometimes I'd take them to the drive-in. We'd go through and I'd buy my cream cones. There were about five of them in there. And of course, they just loved that. And, and so I, it, I started developing a rapport with young people again. And that's what made me feel like, I guess I'm ready to be a teacher. So I got on the GI Bill. I, I commuted to Central Washington University and got my teaching certificate there and, um, and started looking for a job. I started subbing in the schools as a substitute teacher. What did you do with the farm? Um, this was in the wintertime, so I could still, I was still running the farm, but I realized that uh, I couldn't do it anymore. And so we rented a little home and I moved off the farm and moved away from all of that. And so my, I was now full-time looking for a job to get hired and was ready to go anywhere. Uh, to, you know, and I remember 
one of the teachers that I substituted for was LDS. And at that same time, my bishop called me to teach early morning seminary. So now I'm teaching early morning seminary and I'm coming in contact with um, a supervisor who supervised all the early morning seminaries in the northern part of the Columbia Basin. And he would come in and sit in on my classes and said, you know, you really need to be working for the church. And I didn't even know that the church had a teaching program. And so he instigated or he set in motion um, having people come and, and view me as a teacher. Observe you. I listened to you talking with Mitch and Mitch mentioned Dan Bell. Dan Bell was one of the one, he was one of the last ones that came. Not only did he sit in on my class, but he videotaped me and then took you know the videotape back. And um, and then the year that year came to an end, and I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that that I was on, you know, that I wanted to get hired. And I didn't hear anything for maybe three months. And then I got a phone call from Salt Lake from a woman who was um, the secretary to M. Russell Ballard. And she said, Elder Ballard is going to be in Salem, Oregon uh, tomorrow, um, rearranging a stake down there. Do you suppose you and your wife could arrange to go down there and meet with him for a minute or two? And I says, yes, we will. And so we drove from Quincy to Salem that night Stayed in, a, stayed in a motel and got up the next morning and I had an interview with M. Russell Ballard. <laughs> and that was, it was short. It was probably, I probably wasn't in his, in his uh, presence for maybe more than seven, eight minutes. And then he interviewed my wife and then we heard no more. And maybe a month after that, I got a phone call and said, uh, you have been hired to work for the church and your first assignment's going to be in Wenatchee, Washington. And I was going to go there to open up the seminary. And so that's how I got into church education, was, was doing that. Wow. I've robbed an awful lot and you haven't said anything. So, so I'm sorry, I just kind of rambled on there a little bit. And, and, uh, but that's, that's kind of the, that's the foundation of where I am right now. So David, when you went to Wenatchee, um, did you, had you had your second daughter? Yes. And how old were the girls? Well, let's see, this was 1984 now. And so my oldest daughter was four and my youngest daughter was one. Okay. And that's when we realized that there was something amiss with my youngest daughter. And so we were going to have to start dealing with that. What did you, what were things that you were noticing with her? She wasn't developing as normal. And uh, I, she had a convulsion once. And so, you know, we making several trips to the doctor and all that, and, and he didn't know how to diagnose what she had. And so we just lived with it for a while. And, and eventually, uh, you know, over the next couple of years, we, we came to realize that she was on the autism spectrum. And what has that um, taught you as a father? having a daughter? That's a good question. And thank you for asking that. Um, when we realized that we had a special needs child, 
I remember our first thoughts were, what have we done? What have, what have we done to bring this upon ourselves? And I realized maybe that was kind of a survival thing. I don't know. I look at it now and I realize it was very selfish, extremely selfish, because we were thinking of our, what's this going to mean for us? It's going to change the rest of our lives. How are we going to be able to deal with this? And so you see, I was looking at specifically and totally from a personal standpoint and a selfish one. And I remember, so we, we, we graduated from that phase to the phase was, well, these are the cards that have been dealt us and we'll just make the most of it. And we lived in that phase for a while. I don't know how long it was. But I also noticed that having her was changing me and it was softening me and causing changes to my character that um, I, I had not anticipated. From that, we graduated into the next phase. And I think it was when we were at the temple that we had this come to us both at the same time. And we realized how blessed we were to have had this child entrusted into our care. And then to realize on top of that, that we were entrusted into hers and that she was going to teach us some vital lessons that were going to help us become better parents, better people and better disciples of Christ. And she has. And so that's, that's what that has done for us. And it, it has not been easy. There's been times when it's been very hard. I'll just share one experience that it's a heartbreaker. And when, when my oldest daughter was in high school, going to Hill High, and my youngest daughter was, uh, she was attending special classes at, I don't know, Brown or I'm not sure, Comer, one of those schools over there. And my oldest daughter was cute, she was pretty, she was very popular. And so every Friday night, she had something going on with her friends. And one night, um, she was on the phone talking with some of her friends and they were making plans on what they were going to do. And the friends came over and, and picked her up. And, uh, and off she went. And so there we sat, my wife and I getting on with our evening. And then Kit, that's the name of our, our youngest daughter. She came out and she said, me have no plans. Me have no friends. And that was a stake in our hearts. And we realized that we had to do even more to do what we could to give her 
uh, as much of a normal um, relationship with other people as we possibly could. Interesting. Uh, a year or so after that, she was in ninth grade and she was in my seminary class for the very first time. And she had, she's as healthy as a horse and she never missed a day of school. But one day she had an appointment with a doctor and so my wife took her off. And so I had the class alone. And so I told them a little bit about her and told her all she really wants in life is just to have friends like other people. Well, there were angels in that classroom, absolute angels in there. And they took it upon themselves to befriend her. They took her to dances. They had slumber parties, birthday parties, and they always invited her. Girls and boys both befriended her and carried her along and gave her a social life that she had never had before. And all I can think of to this day is they were angels. And it just grew from there. It, it spread from one class to the other and all the kids knew who she was and all the kids just seemed to rally around and become her friend. And I'm just so grateful for that. So this all stems from your question, what has it done for me as a father? I don't know if I specifically answered that, but you can kind of see how it's caused me to feel inside and my wife as well. Oh, that's wonderful, David. So she not only has had effect on me, but she had an effect on those other kids other too. Other kids, yeah, yeah. And so I realized here I was concerned about her handicaps, if you want to call them that. And I realized one of the things she's taught me is we all have handicaps. And which ones are really important? You know, are who's got the worst handicap, her or me? <laughs> and so she's helped me overcome mine as we've tried to help her overcome hers. And it's been um, a nice experience. Oh, that's so wonderful. Would you uh, mind sharing right now some of your experiences that you had with seminary students? Because um, it's, you know, I know what Hill High is, but those listening might know. So after some point, you came to Oregon on the west side of Portland. So what, how many years did you teach seminary? And how did seminary change from when you started teaching it to when That's you retired? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an, an overview of that, and then I'll get specific. I, I taught in Wenatchee for six years and, um, and then came down to Oregon and, and, uh, in 1990 and then taught there for eight years and, uh, and then became an institute teacher and moved to Vancouver, Washington. But one of the things that I learned just kind of an overview is how my students changed over the years. I know that I changed as a teacher. And so part of my perception of them is surely affected by my ability to, to look at them and understand them uh, at the different stages of my development as a teacher. But 
I know that the students that I had at the end of my seminary career were more spiritually sophisticated than the ones who were at the beginning of my seminary career. It was interesting that I had to, you know, at the beginning of my career, I, I spent more time introducing them to the, excuse me, to the value of reading the scriptures and, and the stories and, and things like that. By the time I had, was, you know, towards the end of my seminary career, those kids were already well, well versed in the scriptures. And so it was like they were on a merry-go-round and I didn't have to get the merry-go-round going. They came into my class, it was already going. I just needed to be the one standing by the side, giving it a little nudge as I went by and keeping them, keeping the momentum going because they were great kids. And, um, but I'll tell you a couple of lessons that I, that I learned from them early on that, that maybe this was one of the most important ones one that I'm thinking of right now. I had a, had a girl in one of my classes. She was in my fourth period class. And she was pretty. She was intelligent. She was gifted. Um, and she just destroyed my lesson every day. She was so outgoing and irreverent and crude sometimes <laughs> and um, said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I could have three periods of wonderful lessons, but every day I knew that she was going to be there in my fourth period class. And it was gonna be a challenge to get through a good lesson with those kids. And she was not mean spirited. She was fun loving, but you know, she would crack jokes. She would make comments. She would just do goofy things. And it just, destroyed the spirit of my class. And so she and I clashed a little bit because I was trying to temper her, trying to bring her under wraps a little bit and, and control her a little bit. And I remember praying, Heavenly Father, please help her to stop me doing those things and help me to know what. And finally, one day, my prayer was different. I remember sitting back in my office at the end of the brutal day <laughs> because of her class. And I said in my prayer, I said, Heavenly Father, help me to see her as thou seest her. Help me to love her. Because I didn't love her. She knew it. And I'm sure the rest of the class did too. And here I was a teacher teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and wasn't living it myself very well. And so I called her after class the next day and I just asked her, I just talked with her a little bit and, and wanted to just get to know her a little better and see if I could elicit from her a little bit more cooperation. And as I talked with her, she broke into tears. And it was interesting because I wasn't doing anything to make her feel uncomfortable, but because I wasn't accusing her or berating her in any way, I was talking to her very gently but something struck with her and she broke into tears. And then for the first time, we talked heart to heart to each other. And from that point on, I started to learn a little bit more about her. And I realized that she came from a family that uh, she had older sisters, siblings, and 
and they were all straight A students and many of them were very gifted in music and other areas and she was not. But she was gifted with wit and very intelligence and all that. And I'm sure that, you know, that she would go into classes at school and her teachers would say, oh, you're Becky's younger daughter, you know. And so they would expect her to be like her older, and she never could measure up to them. So what she was doing, what I realized what she was doing was, she was just getting attention her own way. And what I realized from that is all of us just want to be loved, don't we? Loved and accepted by other people. And sometimes we don't know the best way to act to have that happen. But I realized that, that uh, there needed to be some change in there. And so I took more of an interest in her. And I would involve her more in the class and see the humor of what she was saying and laugh myself because it was funny sometimes. And so we became friends. And I liked having her in my class, even as irreverent as she was, I liked it. And I made allowances for that in my lesson and everything and we just got around it. And I was no longer put off by her. In fact, I was, learning to like her a lot. And then I realized I loved her. When that kicked in, she began to change. She became less demanding of attention, more reverent at the right times. And we developed a wonderful friendship. She knew I loved her. The rest of the students knew it as well as I loved all of them. And, um, and that class became one of my favorite classes to teach. And look at the lesson she taught me as a result of that. And that made all the difference. I had to make the first change. And when I changed in my feelings towards her, she changed. And that isn't the gospel principle. I don't know what is. And so, yeah, that was, that was a, a, a lesson that I have um, appreciated ever since then and, and have applied ever since then. It's got to start with us. It's got to start within our own hearts. You know, we take the sacrament every Sunday. The sacrament embodies the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just think of it. I, I served as a bishop for a while. I remember one time watching those young men prepare the sacrament, tearing the, you know, tearing the bread and putting it on there. And I, I thought about, you know, the Savior bruised and broken and bleeding for us. And, and the sacrament began to take on different meanings at that time. But I realized that the emblems of the sacrament embody the love of our Heavenly Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? And so what we're doing on, during the sacrament is we're partaking of the love of God. We're feasting of a portion of the tree of life. And now look at the physical way sacrament is passed. 
By authority, it is blessed. By authority, it is passed to us. By the Lord's priesthood, he empowers those young men to bless and pass the sacrament. And here's the key. Here comes the love of God in that bread and in that water. And look what we do. We take of it ourselves. We take it into our bodies and then we turn and we give it to the person next to us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ right there. Yes. That's so beautiful. We pass the love of God. Do you have, David, you mentioned that there was another um, experience you would like to share about teaching seminary. Do you recall it? There are many, but I will, I will, I'll share two very briefly. I don't know how we're doing time rules. I, I, I have, we've probably gone over time. I don't know. Keep going. I'll share two, two little <laughs> brief experiences here. Okay. Um, one powerful lesson that I remember teaching in, uh, at Hillsboro. It was, I don't remember what it was, but what prompted it, all I remember was that I was going to have, turn the lesson over to the students. And so at the beginning of the class, and I had large classes, I think my smallest class was probably 25, my, my uh, uh, largest class was probably 35. And so I had, you know, good sized classes. And so I had, the, I had them all sit in a circle. And I wanted to just go around the circle with the kids. And I said, I, what I would like to hear from you is if you could be alone with the Savior just for a few minutes, what would you ask him? What would you like to ask him? And that's how I was going to begin each lesson throughout that day. And oh my goodness, what sweet, powerful things came as a result of that. And some of them very tender. You know, I remember one girl saying, oh, I, I would want to know if, it was, if I was the reason that my parents got divorced. And another one asked, uh, um, why did my little brother have to die so young? And then one girl, I remember her saying, I don't know that I would want to ask him anything. I think I just want to tell him how much I loved him. And so you can see that in a, in a day's time, uh, listening to all these just sweet, sweet things that these kids were saying, um, the room was just filled with the spirit. At the end of fifth period, it's interesting that it was the last class because I had just been basking in this all day long. And um, at the kids had gotten all the way around and then one of the girls raised her hand and said, but the holiday, You've been listening to us. What would you like to ask him? And it threw me for a second because I hadn't thought about it from my own perspective. I thought, well, okay, uh, let me think of that just for a second. Here's what I would like to ask him. How did you do it? How did you get the strength? to get through Gethsemane, the darkest point in your life. How did you do it? Now, 
I was just going to say that to the kids and not say any more. So I said that and I just looked at him and the room was silent. And then a very strong impression went through my mind. And again, it was like words being formed that said, that conveyed the intelligence. I don't know it word for word, but, but this was the intelligence that I received. I got through the darkest period of life, my life, because in those dark moments, I remembered you. And I remember sharing that to my students and saying, that's you. And that's you. And I looked each one of them in the eye. And I bore my testimony to them. We're all going to have dark times in our life. But I know we'll get through our darkest times if we always remember him. So that just came up. I, that, I, I had no plans on, on, on telling you that. Uh, but I'll, but I'll um, maybe I'll share one more. Mitch told you about um, the church history tour that he continues to, to uh, uh, direct. And I was part of the very first one and a couple of them after that as well. And got to go there with some of my choice, you know, some of my students along with them. One of the beautiful things about the church history tour, and I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't already know because you know how powerful music is. You know how powerful the hymns are. They're they're just magical, and but they, no, that's not the right word. They're glorious in their way of lifting us at different times. We would travel to these different sites and it didn't make, you know, we would go to the sacred grove. Well, you know what we sang when we were in the sacred grove, you know what we sang there. And in doing that, it became sacred to us as well. Somehow the music has a way, it's a Zion moment really, if you think about it, because we're all saying the same words at the same time, even thinking the same thoughts sometimes. And so it becomes a Zion moment. And it, it really binds you together spiritually, not only with the spirit and with our heavenly father, but with each other. As you look into each other's faces and you're singing these, these marvelous verses. And so that's what we did at each of the sites we would go to. But not only that, the kids would sing on the bus. And so as we're traveling you know, across Indiana or some of these long stretches of highway, you know, we're doing things to, past the time, someone would just immediately, you know, not immediately, someone would just burst into start singing the song and everyone would just start, you know, join right in with them. And it was always just the, the sacred hymns that we were singing and, and they just transported us. Um, you, know, you know, when we got to Nauvoo and went to Carthage, you know, it was, uh, uh, well, you know what we sang in the Carthage jail. And when we got back in, in Kirtland, you know, the Spirit of God, when we got in the Kirtland Temple, we got to sing the Spirit of God in there. And then Nauvoo, it was a poor wayfaring man of grief. And, and so each of the sites we got to sing 
the songs that were written, the hymns that were written about those places. Well, the interesting thing was, is that when we flew home after a week of this, we got on the plane in uh, Kansas City and we were placed in little groups throughout the, the airplane. And our groups were four and five here and another four or five there in different places up and down the aisle, all the way from first class, you know, the first class uh, curtain all the way to the back. So we were, there's probably 60 of us, maybe, or more in there. Well, by this time, these kids had lost all their inhibitions, their, their spiritual inhibitions. And so here we are flying through the night sky over the plains and the Rockies and some kid way up in the big front of the plane would start singing, I'm a child of God. Then the next group would hear them and pick up you know, and join in. And then the next group would join in and join in all through the plane, person, the whole plane, all the way from the front to the back. You got 60 LDS kids singing, I'm a child of God. Without any embarrassment at all. Um, I know that my Redeemer lives. More holiness give me. Uh, teach me to walk in the light of his love. It was that way from the, the whole flight was like that. At the end of the flight, as we we're getting ready to descend into Portland, Bob Stark, who was a seminary teacher in the, in the he was, he and his little group of kids were in the very back of the plane and they felt kind of cheated because most of the hymns had started up front and so they only got to get to the last verse or so when it you know, became their turn. So as we're descending into Portland, he and his group of about five or six kids get up and they walk the entire length of the fuselage all the way up to first class and turn around going back singing God be with you till we meet again. I don't know if you can imagine the feeling that that brought, but it's, it's not a strictly an LDS home and or LDS hymn. And there were people on that airplane that joined with us and sang with us. When we pulled into Portland, landed into Portland, those kids just bubbled off the plane. And of course, their parents were there and everything and, uh, and greeting them. And, and it was just a nice reunion. And one of the mothers uh, whom I know um, told me that, that the head of the flight attendants came up to her as she saw him as she was leaving the plane. And she said, oh, you're, you're one of the mothers of these kids. She said, I have been flying for 28 years. I think that's what she said, something like that. And I've never had a more delightful flight than this. You have wonderful children, thank you. And went on about business. So power of hymns, power of youth. Um, it's wonderful, wonderful. Yes, they are. They are incredible. And hymns, music is invites the spirit quicker than anything else, I think. I agree. Well, now you're <clears throat> serving in the temple. Yes. Why do you love the temple? Well, this may sound cliche, um, 
there is a feeling about the temple that's unlike any other place. And you don't readily get that from just going there occasionally. It's the same thing with scripture study. People think the scriptures are boring sometimes and they'll never get much beyond that if they don't bathe in the scriptures, if they don't swim in the scriptures. And it's a similar with the temple. People go to the temple and they, they don't go for a long time and they go back and, and it's nice and all that. But the temple has become uh, a sanctuary, I guess, in a way. Uh, it, you know that it's a house of order, it's a house of prayer, it's a house of learning. It's also a house of revelation and it's a house of healing. And you can be healed in the temple, spiritually and maybe physically, I don't know. But I know that emotionally and physically or, or spiritually, your unseen wounds can be healed. Um, I have had sacred experiences in the temple that just um, make it Im embedded more deeply in my heart than ever before. There are things that you can learn in the temple that you cannot learn anywhere else. Uh, being a cedar in the temple. Here we are living in a nation that is more divided right now than probably at any time since the Civil War. We're living in a world that is fractured and falling apart and Satan is doing his best to stir contention in the hearts of people and um, to disrupt, break up families, break up couples, break up nations. But it isn't it interesting that the gospel of Jesus Christ is designed to unite people. And in the temple, Families are united forever, for eternity. And I hear myself saying those words sometimes, having authority and being able to, to seal families together for eternity. I remember long ago thinking, I don't know if I'd ever want to be a cedar. All you do is just sit there and you just say the same things over again. Oh my goodness, how wrong I was. I've had such wonderful spiritual experiences as a cedar, but also just as a regular ordinance worker. But more recently, of course, it's, it's as a cedar, just some of the choices, choices, experiences. And you see, in the ceiling room, that's the only ordinance that you do with somebody else. All the rest of the ordinances, baptism or the endowment, you do it by yourself. And then you get to be with somebody else in the celestial room. Well, the ceiling ordinance room is kind of like a mini celestial room. And husbands and wives are there together with each other. And they participate in this together. And I talk to them and, and I ask them questions and then I offer insights on my own. And so we, we develop a spiritual rapport together and share wonderful things that we can talk freely about in the temple. And here they are, they're kneeled together over an altar. Well, the altar represents the atonement, isn't it? I mean, that's the sacrifice of Christ. It's the atonement. And when a couple are there to be married together, look what's 
there that they're leaning on, they're supporting them in the middle of their arrangement, husband and wife, and between them is the atonement of Christ. And they take each other in a marvelous hand grip that also symbolizes the atonement and its place in their lives. And that's majestic. And when you're doing, I've performed ceilings for people that lived before Christ came upon the earth. I did ceilings one night, almost every one of them were for a Chinese couple that came in. And many of their people that they were doing the work were, were from 300, 400 BC. Um, I'm from Finland. My, my father is from Finland. And, and so many of my ancestors are from Finland. And I found one of my ancestors who had 14 children. Of the 14 children, seven of them died before the age of five. They lived in the 1500s. And I think what their life must have been like to raise children like that and to see them go to see them die. And then I had the opportunity to seal them together as a family. And I could feel and sense their joy at the moment that they were being sealed together, sense their presence. Um, that's the temple. I've had experiences I wish I could share with you there. If we were in the temple, I would. I'll share a briefly just a, maybe this kind of summarizes the whole the whole thing. One time, some years ago, there was a man on our shift that I felt like I needed to get to know him a little bit better. And I, I was serving at the time as living endowment director. So that meant that, that all new missionaries or anybody coming to the, any male coming to the temple for the very first time, I was going to work with them through the evening and help them through the different ordinances. And so I had a young man from Vancouver, British Columbia and very sharp young man going, going on a mission to Hong Kong or somewhere like that. And, um, and I worked with him through the, the beginning stages. And then I had a time to myself that I uh, was alone. So I, I had some free time. So I went and sat in um, the brother's little instruction room. I was in there alone. And this other worker came in. And I, and I said to him as he sat down, and you know, I nodded to him and like that, and I said, I understand you're a Vietnam veteran too. Well, Beth, that was the wrong thing for me to say. We've been instructed not to talk about worldly things in the temple, you know, to avoid that as much as possible. And I realized the minute that I said that, that it was the wrong thing to say. But it triggered in him some memories. And he started telling me about his experiences in Vietnam. Mine were not a pickup or a picnic, but listening to him talk about his was horrible. And here I was sitting in the Lord's house, dressed in my temple white clothing and my mind was going back to Vietnam. And I could see it in my mind, I could smell it, I could feel it, and I felt so unclean and so 
devoid of the spirit. I finally excused myself. I had to get ready to go up and, and meet this young man and help him in, you know, get through the veil into the celestial room. But I wasn't in the right spirit. So I went and found a little room that I that I like to go to sometimes that I know I can be alone in. And I went in there and I, I got down on my knees and I just said, Heavenly Father, please, I'm sorry. Please help me wash these feelings out of me so that I can have the proper spirit with me so that I can go help this young man through the veil and into the celestial room to be with his family. And, uh, and that was one of those prayers that was answered pretty regularly, right away. I, I felt better, I felt much better. Not 100%, but I felt better enough to where I knew that I could do, a, do my job. So I went up there and I helped the young man. I stepped into the, into the celestial room with him. And I just watched as his mother was there and she came over and she kissed him and hugged him and a father and some brothers and sisters and some friends. And then I, I watched the other people that were coming in and, and there was a sister that obviously was, was deeply touched, an older woman. She came in and sat down over on one of the sofas and, and just put her hands in her face and or her hands in her face, her face in her hands. And, uh, and I could see that she had, she had tears coming out down her cheeks. And another sister came in, put her arm around her, kissed her on the cheek. I could hear the kiss from across the celestial room. And, and that room was just so full with the spirit. There was just such a spirit of love and light in there. I looked up at the chandelier. Now this is the Seattle temple, but I know what the Portland temple looks like at other temples. And here was this big, beautiful chandelier. And, you know, there's so much symbolism in the temple and the, and the chandelier can mean many things to many different people. But at that moment for me, it was the tree of life. Shedding forth its love abroad in the hearts of all those who were there. And it just touched me so deeply. And then as I stood there, this old veteran came in from somewhere, saw where I was and came over and stood beside me. And I looked at him and, and very quickly, he felt the power of what was going on in that room. And I leaned over to him and I whispered, think of where you and I have been and look where we are now. And he got a tear in his eye and just a slightest little smile on his, on his lips. And he looked at me and he just nodded his head, yes. And, uh, and then I thought to myself, this is the place. This is the place of all the places on earth. This is where we are healed. This is where we're cleansed from the blood and sins of this generation. No place like it in the world. This is the Lord's house. And that's the temple for me. Thank you. That's beautiful. Well, I appreciate the time you've spent with me and, and with our audience that will hear this. Um, the last question that I always ask those that I'm talking to interviewing is, how do you personally seek light? 
Well, to answer that, I can give you the, the peripheral answers of, I read my scriptures every day. I say my prayers in morning and night and oftentimes throughout the day to keep the light in my life. And it is a light. Um, and I attend the temple, of course, every week I'm at the temple. And I try to lift and serve my fellow man as much as I can, because it is doing that that lifts my spirit at the same time. And you know that's true because you've experienced it in your own life. And, but pretty much everything I've said tonight has been answering that question. Everything I've said is really how I have followed the light when I first was introduced to it out there in the field, my cantaloupe patch, and decided I wanted that in my life for forever. And when those missionaries left my house and took that spirit with them, I realized I wanted that in my life forever. And so I've tried to do all the things that I could possibly do to, um, to find that light, to retain it, to maintain it in my life. I'm not a perfect person, but I do my best. I try to repent, as our prophet has told us, every single day. I look for ways in which I can improve and be a better person than I was yesterday. And that's really what I want. I'm not ashamed to say, I want to be a good boy. I want to be a better person. And I want to be a better person so that I can help other people be a better person too. And I guess that's the best way that I can say that. But I, I know you felt the spirit as we've been talking. I've felt the spirit as we've been talking. You know it and I know it. We both of us have felt that. That's really all that matters. It's the things of the spirit are really the things that matter. And I know that's true. I absolutely know that, that those are the things that really matter. And as, as, just, as chaotic as this world is right now, I know the day is coming when the Savior is going to put it all back together again. And I want to be there for that. I want you there too. <laughs> yes, I want to be there too. David, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your wonderful experiences and, and for really the spirit's been very strong. And, and I am so grateful for this opportunity I've had to visit with you and share this with those um, that are li that listen to my podcast. So thank you so much. I am so grateful that you listened to my latest podcast. Please share these episodes with your family and friends. I look forward to being with you again soon. Have a great day.